Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew and today I'm joined by my colleagues Edward Gossip, our emerging market economist, and Bob Gilhulley, our senior emerging market economist, as we talk through some of the consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, of course, as I say, we are a politics and economics podcast, so that will be the main lens through which we think through some of these implications. But first and foremost, I should say that this is ultimately a humanitarian disaster, and our thoughts and sympathies are with those that are affected by these terrible events. So, Ed, perhaps if I turn to you first, you were on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, what turned out to be the very eve of the invasion. Um, I think it's fair to say quite a lot has happened since then. We're sitting here on the 7th of March. We record this. So can you give us an update on where things stand at the moment? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Luke. Um, I just wanted to echo your sentiments around the around the crisis it's um and the human tragedy but but as lucas as, as you say it does fall on us to assess the the macro and political implications so at the time of recording on the 7th of march um there are, there are a few developments to highlight so, so first is that unfortunately the, the conflict shows little signs of abating it is very difficult to get accurate information about developments on the ground there, there are certainly suggestions that Ukraine is putting up a stiff resistance and that Russia's military progress has perhaps been slower than it, it may have anticipated. But it's far from clear that, that Russia's military is, is running out of steam. So I, th- I think that's where we are to date, um, you know, with the caveats that we we have very little visibility about about what is happening on the ground in terms of accurate information. Um Perhaps the most significant development since since we last spoke a few weeks ago has been the aggressive round of sanctions imposed by the West on Russia. So there are a whole host of sanctions that, that have been imposed, ranging from individual asset freezes to bans on secondary trading of Russian government debt to restrictions on Russian imports. But there are two measures that are perhaps the most significant and have grabbed the most headlines. Uh, the first is uh, SWIFT sanctions, sanctions on SWIFT, the, the Belgian entity, um, which is the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, to give its full name. Um, the, U- the US, EU and allies have agreed now to remove seven major Russian banks from the SWIFT messaging platform, effective from 12th of March. And that includes VTB Bank, which is a, a very large Russian bank, though not yet Sparebank and Gazprom, which are two major Russian banks that undertake a large share of energy-related transactions. So this is where the energy carve-out comes in that, that, that people speak of. So how damaging will these will these be? I mean, in in theory, kind of any form of messaging, such as email or, or, or telephone, could be used instead of SWIFT. But it would clearly be far less efficient and reliable and kind of notwithstanding a general reluctance to engage with Russia, Western uh, banks would be unlikely to agree to, to using such alternatives. So I think that's that's the key. It's, it's probably going to cut off Russia, make it much more difficult for Russia to transact with the rest of the world via trade and trade and investment capital flows. So that's the first. And the second uh, major sanction is, is on Russia's central bank. So Western powers, the US, UK, Germany, France, Italy, Canada, and, and Japan have, have agreed to impose sanctions on Russia's central bank. 
which is a fairly unprecedented action. Um, I can only think of Afghanistan, where which is another central bank that has been sanctioned in the past by the West, but it's a fairly unprecedented action. And this limits Russia's central bank's ability to deploy its international reserves. So Russia's central bank ha- has, has very large reserves of about 630 billion. Um, but now a large share of these estimates are around 50% or so will, will essentially be, it'd be difficult for these to be liquidated. And as a result of that, the, the Russian ruble has fallen very sharply by about 30% since those measures have been imposed. And the central bank itself has suggested that it's been unable to intervene in FX markets. So they are the two major sanctions that we have seen so far. Great. Thanks, Ed. So, Bob, maybe if I bring you in here and it's perhaps useful to provide a little bit more context about what these central bank reserves are that people are talking about. Because I think Ed's right. This is a pretty unprecedented action that we saw there not expected, I don't think, by many people in terms of the sanctions that the West may put in place. So, you know, w- what is it that's being sanctioned and why is this so significant? Yeah, I mean, thanks. thanks. I mean, they're effectively reserves are sort of effectively an insurance policy to help guard against currency stress and currency crises. So in, in effect, you know, the West is kind of nullifying that uh, insurance policy. Uh, it, reserves typically take the form of foreign currency or government bond holdings by the government. Uh, especially US dollar holdings, given the liquidity advantages that brings in the global financial system. Uh, I mean, large balances are particularly important with the country's fixing exchange rate, but they also help to lean against pressure, even if exchange rates are largely market determined. So, for example, currency depreciation pushes up on inflation by making imported goods more expensive, therefore making the central bank's job harder. So in some situations, they don't want to lean against this and clearly also the larger the balances you have uh the less likely you are to suffer a speculative attack that could in you know the extreme become potentially self-fulfilling um it is also worth saying you know there is a kind of political as well as technocratic dimension to all of this you know there is a cost of lending money say to the us vis-a-vis what you could do it domestically avoiding the need to go kind of cap in hand the imf lending comes with strings attached is one reason why we've seen reserves rise notably across emerging markets since the Asian financial crisis in the uh, late 1990s. Okay, I think that's that's very useful context. And I like that phrase there. It's the insurance policy for a lot of these countries. So Ed, with that insurance policy ripped away through sanctions and indeed having been turned off from the SWIFT payment system. Can we talk for a little bit some of the effects of all of this on the Russian economy? You mentioned what was happening to the ruble there, but in terms of sort of what we're expecting from those financial markets and the economy itself, any observations? Yeah, sure. Um, So so I think uh, there already seems to be a very large impact on Russia's economy from, from the sanctions. You know, for example, the widespread reports of, of large queues outside ATM machines. Uh, the central bank has imposed various FX restrictions, so kind of capital controls, of uh, light capital controls, in order to try to ease the pressure on the ruble in the absence of its ability to deploy FX reserves. Um, and we, we've, we've seen you know, very, lots of stories of people having difficulty using debit credit cards because of the SWIFT, the SWIFT restrictions. And so this is likely to result in a, in a very steep contraction in GDP combined with the, the, the sharp drop in, in trade too. 
So we, we at the research team, we have currently penciled in a decline in GDP of around 3.3% this year. And that's roughly in line with the drop seen in the COVID shock, but a little bit more mild than in 1998, in, in the default in 1998 and in the GFC in 2009. But there is a lot of uncertainty about how large that fall will be. And that fall would be very substantial, substantially deeper if we would see energy related sanctions, which looks like it may be a, an increasing possibility. And in terms of that uncertainty, not just around the economy, but also the course of the invasion itself and the geopolitical consequences around that, perhaps some thoughts on how things might develop around there. Maybe maybe I'll start off by asking you sort of what's the best case scenario from, from where we are as you see it? Yeah, I think that probably the best case scenario or the least bad outcome from this may be at least over a kind of one to two year period, maybe that Putin comes under you know, substantial domestic political pressure and he is eventually ousted because of kind of miscalculations around the whole the whole conflict, um, you know. So there are suggestions that the there have, has been a military miscalculation that perhaps Russia had expected to have taken major cities by now, and that hasn't happened because the Ukrainian resistance has been stronger. Um, and so there is a theory out there that Putin could be ousted due to a palace coup or or popular revolt or perhaps both. And we we find this scenario somewhat unlikely. Um, because, I mean, Putin appears to have purged many of the more moderate figures from his inner circle anyway and become much closer to the military. Um, And, of course, widespread repression suggests that any popular revolts may struggle to to gain momentum. There are kind of other slightly more positive scenarios, like a a neutrality deal, which would be kind of in the spirit of Finland's position during the Cold War, um, or a kind of a partition, de facto partition down the middle of the country if Russian forces are, are forced to retreat back towards the towards the east. I think both both of these scenarios present challenges. Um, we are we suspect that the Russian military may have more may have more to go, more gears to go through. And history suggests clearly that Putin is, is very willing to use these if necessary. Um, and, you know, with, with severe Western sanctions already imposed, there is arguably little deterring Putin until he has achieved these his political goals. Um, in terms of kind of more probable scenarios or, or scenarios that we, we find a little bit more likely, um, the puppet government scenario is, 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 I would say, our base case. So effectively, this involves, um, you know, th- th- Russia embedding uh, embedding key personnel into the Ukrainian military in order to establish law and order, um, and perhaps occupying the country for a period of time in order to instill um, a puppet government similar to similar to how Belarus has evolved. Um, there are, of course, challenges to to this scenario as well. In particular, it is not not guaranteed that Putin would be able to establish law and order with with a temporary occupation and it may turn into a very messy long-term occupation of the country, which clearly is not probably not what Putin wants. And then that brings you back to perhaps uh, the partition scenario, which, which I mentioned earlier. Um, but as things stand, we think this is probably the, the most likely scenario, even if we have very low conviction on, on this. Um, it's kind of finally worth noting that the most negative downside scenario we have in our analysis is, is that Putin attacks NATO members. We, we still judge this as a very low risk. Um, you know, it's not clear that 
Putin would risk a major war with with the US that Russia you know, could not win. Um, and Putin's inner circle and allies, perhaps, perhaps like China or more, you know, Russian sympathising countries like China would presumably see this as a major overstep. Um, but, you know, with, with Putin becoming increasingly risk tolerant and radical, we still feel like it is a non-negligible risk. OK, thanks, Ed. So, Bob, maybe if I bring you back in now and we expand the conversation a little bit first, perhaps just to talk about some of the economic consequences outside of Russia and Ukraine itself. Obviously, we've seen this huge run up in energy prices, um, further supply chain disruptions in a global economy that's already hit by many imbalances and inflation pressures. I mean, how, how are we seeing the impact of this on, on the global economy more generally and, and how policymakers might react to it? Yeah, I mean, probably partly related, of course, the, the kind of the, the fog of war that, that Ukraine has created, uh, you know, our uncertainty about how this all plays out for the global economy is, is you know, very, very high too. Um, the implications of the Ukraine crisis, you know, the, the sanctions that we've seen to date, but also the reactions of oil, gas, agricultural commodity markets. And I think of this being kind of best viewed through the, the prism of the kind of inflation challenge that was already facing the global economy even before uh, Ukraine uh, crisis began. Uh, and, you know, given the Federal Reserve and other central banks were playing catch up, having been kind of wrong footed by the strength and persistence of underlying inflation, kind of th- viewing this as the Ukraine crisis effectively only making it tougher to kind of look through uh, the increase in energy and commodity prices, you know, when inflation is clearly uh, so far above target. Indeed, you know, expectations for tightening by the Federal Reserve are kind of little changed um, since the Ukraine crisis began. You know, we're still penciling in uh, seven twenty-five basis points uh, hikes by the Fed uh, and the withdrawal of policy stimulus being reinforced by quantitative tightening as this balance sheet begins to run down in the second half of this year. Um, it's certainly a difficult balancing act for the Fed. Uh, lags between, I think, the policymaking, currently high inflation combined with sectoral reopening dynamics, as many uh, countries such as the US are kind of shifting towards this living with COVID strategy, I think kind of potentially makes the risks particularly high. So supply is lagging behind demand, potentially, as economies reopen. Uh, if the Fed's then forced into kind of breaking late, I do think this is kind of amplifying the risk of recession and market turmoil down the road. Indeed, our recession risk models actually now suggest the chance of recession before the end of 2024 currently stand at over 25%, highlighting this kind of precariousness of the outlook and the risk that maybe the Fed uh, inadvertently kills the cycle. Um, It's not, of course, the case that everyone faces this kind of same high wire act uh, that the Fed does on war and its borders. It's one reason where we think this kind of temper the tightening by the European Central Bank, not to mention that it's less acute imbalances than the US, longer history of kind of below inflation target, all suggesting the ECB may well be treading cautiously. Uh, and then, you know, China's kind of bookending the other end of the policy spectrum here. Uh, policy easing had actually already begun in China. And, you know, if anything, the rhetoric has just shifted uh, more pro-growth. Uh, the most recent example being the 2022 growth target of around 5.5%, which is slightly above consensus expectations and yes that may be low by Chinese standards but we do need to see a sequential pickup uh, for them to stand any chance of hitting this. Okay so that that speaks to the economics but in terms of maybe a slightly wider lens on 
geopolitics, I suppose one question that I hear a lot of people asking at the moment is something to the effect of, you know, how does the situation in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, affect some of the political and geopolitical considerations around Taiwan and other hotspots in the world? I mean, is there a connection that can be drawn there in any way? Personally, I think I think that, that connection's a, a little bit tenuous. So, you know, yes, some some commentators have speculated, you know, risks of amp, could be amplified around Taiwan, given kind of US resources and attention, it's maybe a little bit more stretched uh, across kind of uh, two two fronts. And, you know, one can still possibly imagine kind of scenarios where the odds of conflict are maybe increased either intentionally or unintentionally at the margin. So, for example, if the US, say, spurred on by Ukraine to ramp up sales of advanced weapon systems to Taiwan, maybe China might react uh, adversely uh, to, to that. Um, but I think what we really would emphasize here is kind of unlike the Ukraine crisis, where the dynamics, particularly the Russian aims, tended towards instability, uh, there are strong kind of balancing factors and reasons to believe the status quo will largely hold uh, in Taiwan. I mean, most importantly, any sort of forced reunification with Taiwan would put other aims of the Communist Party in, in, in jeopardy. So even if a conflict with the US was avoided, the risk of substantial economic sanctions, potential exit of Western firms, could certainly threaten China's path to becoming a high-income uh, country. And, you know, one might well argue that the lesson from Ukraine could be that the West is just much more willing to weaponize its economic and financial system than we uh, than we may have thought previously. Yes, yeah, so on this topic of uh, weaponizing the financial system, and so one final question around that, I suppose we, we talked to, about reserves earlier and, and why various central banks have these large reserve balances as insurance policy. Now, one country that has extraordinarily high reserves and reserves that are denominated very largely in US dollars is, is of course, China. So, I mean, is China going to observe the way in which the Russian central bank uh, has been treated by the central banks in this crisis and sort of adopt or change its reserve strategy accordingly? I mean, are there more fundamental fault lines about sort of the way in which the PBOC might go about managing its business as a consequence of this? I mean, possibly. It's worth saying that um, China's FX strategy has been transitioning quite a lot over the last sort of six years, uh, particularly since they did their kind of shock uh, devaluation back in back in uh, twenty. 2015. So, you know, FX reserves in China, you know, numerically that is large. They've been steady around about sort of 3.1, 3.2 trillion US dollars. So, so not to be to be kind of sniffed at. But that has been falling as a share of GDP uh, also. So I, I think there's kind of a question there about whether they just kind of let this effectively this process maybe uh, continue a little bit faster. It's certainly the case that, you know, they, they they, they don't use these FX reserves nearly to the, the same extent to prop up the currency. But you're right. I, th- I think, you know, this could renew maybe some interest in pushing uh, RB internationalization, could potentially see some more steps to encourage use of its own kind of homegrown uh, payment system. So the cross-border interbank payment system rather than the SWIFT network that, that Ed mentioned uh, earlier. But I think it's also worth considering here, you know, historical lessons suggest that China may well need to become much larger than the US economy before the RMB has, has a hope of really displacing the US dollar within the global financial system. So we could still be talking you know, 15, 20, maybe more years uh, away before that, that happens. 
Well, looking forward to uh, having that conversation with you in 15 <laughs> years time then. But in, in, in the meantime, um, I think that is all that we do have time for today. So thank you very much to Ed and Bob for their time and insights today. This is always very appreciated. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, please do like, subscribe in your preferred podcast platform. And let us once again say, you know, that we pass on our sympathies to all those affected by the terrible crisis in Ukraine. So thanks very much for listening. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.